I want the American dream. I want my house. I want the picket <laughs> fence. I want the 2.5 children. I want it all. You know, saying I want that second home. And you know, if you think about it, like the the things that get challenged, like this is why it's hard. It's it, it yes. deals with the core because it's not just possessions. It's because we made possessions part of our identity, and that's hard. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Dig News Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. This week, I welcome Jose Humphreys and Adam Gustine to the podcast. This is Jose's third appearance on the podcast. He is the founding pastor of Metro Hope Church in East Harlem, New York, and he's the author of Seeing Jesus in East Harlem, What Happens When the Church Shows Up and Stays Put. And Adam Gustine is the Assistant Director of Academic Affairs at the Center for Social Concerns at Notre Dame, and he's the author of Becoming a Just Church, Cultivating Communities of God's Shalom. And they're here together to discuss their new book, Ecosystems of Jubilee, Economic Ethics for the Neighborhood. If you want to keep up with the podcast, subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now. You can find a consistent conversation happening on TikTok if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Dig News Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Jose Humphreys and Adam Gustine. Charity in and of itself is is not a bad thing, right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, Yep, I think absolutely. we need people that will be charitable and that people and organizations and institutions that will be generous. Yes, I, I think where charity short, uh, falls short is in that it, it, it maintains and, and preserve this, preserves the status quo. And I, I think that's the concern. Uh, charity is probably less concerned with what is causing in, uh, some of the injustices around income disparities or why is it that certain schools don't perform well? Or uh, why is it that there is a school to prison pipeline? Or, and then we can go on and on, how, um, houselessness and all kinds of uh, neighborhood maladies. So uh, when people are thinking the charity mindset, they think they can just throw man- money at it. Mm. Uh, and what Jubilee grounded in this, this ethics and this ethos of uh, turning things upside down, turning the dynamics upside down. Uh, we're, we're not only going to look at this system, uh, we're not only going to look at this injustice, but we're we're looking for a reset of sorts that's going to uh, allow us to, to practice a, a, an economics of solidarity with, with people who have less or don't have. Or... You know, we, we can get into the deeper stuff uh, in, in a little later, but, you know, just even on, on, on some categories like labor, right? Mm-hmm. You know, who's doing all the work, uh, who owns and who doesn't own or who has and doesn't have or who's working a lot but still not making enough, right? So a, a jubilee mindset is looking at these systems of, of capitalism, yeah. which inherently uh, embed certain injustices into the world that we live in. And and Adam really speaks about this really well, uh, as this part specifically, that if left in neutral, if nothing happens, uh, the forces of capitalism will, will continue to uh, ebb and flow in the direction of those with privilege. Mm. And that's why we need a, a, a jubilee moment. That's why we need a, a, a disruptive interruption, if you will, in the, in the cycles of, of, of poverty. Right. Which is why you quote, uh, you have that quote, power, power concedes nothing without demand in the book, right? Yeah. Because this, this is the case. And I guess thinking about what you're saying, Jose, just brings up the young white evangelical in me. And <laughs> because as we know, white evangelicalism is a funky system. <laughs> it's sort of drenched with white supremacy and hyper-individualism. And never throughout my time growing up within the tradition was I exposed to conversations about economic justice or labor. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't a part of the conversation. Now, we were political for sure on Right to Life Sunday and against gay marriage, but not about the issues that you're bringing up in this book. And you spend a lot of time 
in the Hebrew Bible, and then you do some work with Jesus and his parables about labor. And I wonder, you know, knowing that that's the case, Adam, I'm not going to assume anything about your upbringing, but I wonder for you as someone from the Midwest who's white, do you have this same experience that I just described? Or was yours a little bit different in your sort of way of coming to understanding that God calls people to economic justice, to lived out justice and not just holding on to heaven? Yeah, I I would say my experience very similar to that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I heard any messages about money, save for ones about being charitable or tithing more. Um, And um, as Jose was saying, like both of those perpetuate systems. Those could be good systems. Those could be bad systems. But uh, the the causes um, that give rise to the need for charity, Mm. uh, if we don't address them, then um, we're not necessarily actively perpetuating them in giving charitably, but we're certainly doing nothing to dismantle them. You know, at a minimum, we're doing nothing to dismantle the root causes that create that. And I, you know, I'll I'll echo what Jose said was for me, the growing realization over the last many years uh, and last few years in particular, thinking about this notion of Jubilee is that it's baked into I guess I could say God's assumptions about the way that society works, that we're going to slide towards systems and structures that exclude and exploit the poor and that extract profit for the benefit of a relative few. And if that's baked into the way that God sort of assumes it's going to happen because this reset is, is sort of cycled in, then, then it ought to be, maybe forefront of my mind when I'm thinking about the way that I'm engaging in the world. And then the other piece of that is that, um, you know, I think about those stories in the gospels of the people bringing the trumpets and giving their tithes and offerings very loudly for everyone to see. Mm. I mean, the, the, the charity industrial complex uh, sort of thrives on that. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we, we name rooms after people based on how much they've given. And, you know, we endow programs and all of that. And I, I, there's a, there's a big system behind that, but I think that the, the ethos there of the, you know, the first fruits I might give to God, uh, then the rest of it's to do what I want. And if I so choose to give some charitably, then I should be lauded for that. Yes. And that's really the world that I was in growing up, right? That's the, the, the basic sort of obvious DNA of the way that we thought about our charitable dollars. And I think the thing that's interesting is that this, this Jubilee mindset is like, Actually, first fruits, last fruits, and everything in between are not yours to do with what you want because you participate in a system that is sliding toward injustice. Mm. And and God is sort of like setting up some ways for people to participate in something that disrupts that status quo. Yeah. And so for me, like um, at the end of the day, it's not about my good heart. Um, it's about my faithfulness to the way of life that I claim in the world, mm. you know, and, and that's a very, very different thing, right? I don't get credit for baseline faithfulness. That's, just, <laughs> that's the, the standard. <laughs> if I don't meet it, then, then I'm, then I don't meet the mark. Yeah. You know, in my tradition, not meeting the mark is called sin. So right. like, if, if I don't meet the mark, I'm sinning. If I meet the mark, then I'm just not sinning. And nobody gets a pat on the back for that. Mm. You know, so for me, that's the big difference between charity and justice is that this is about my faithfulness, our collective faithfulness, yes. undoing structures that oppress and exploit, not look at all these good, rich people giving money to whoever, you know? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you you guys talk extensively about how the pursuit of costs, the pursuit of wealth costs us something. And I don't know which one of you wrote this part. I think it was you, Jose, that talked about ghettos of wealth, mm. where we often associate ghettos with something very different. Um, we, I hear you both saying this sort of thing where we are in a system and that system slides or moves towards injustice unless there's a disruption. And and so we have these ghettos of wealth that are created. I don't know what suburbs are like where all where you guys live. I know a little bit where you know about you, Jose. Where I live in the Boston area, they are there are ghettos of wealth that mm-hmm. um, are white as white can be, uber wealth, like the nation's wealthiest people. What does it look like, do you think, to disrupt those 
systems, those systems that are well established so that we can uh, promote these these sort of uh, ecosystems of Jubilee in those places. That's right. Well, you know, when I think about folks that are isolated in the suburbs or gated communities or uh, wealth holders, right, who hold so much money that uh, their their social networks are basically embedded now. Yeah. The more money you have, now your circles of influence change, even your circles of friendship. That that's that's the way that it happens, and that's the story that people generally accept. So. I, I, you know, I've been really thinking about this a lot when we think about ecosystems of Jubilee, hmm. it, uh, is that there's a story that frames uh, those habits, those practices, how we see money. In other words, I've heard uh, someone recently say, he's a wisdom keeper, he says, money is our most unconscious agreement. Hmm. Think about that, right? We We think that money is just about tender exchange, right? But really, there's a story behind it. There, mm. there's, there's a whole ideology behind the use of this dollar bill or this credit card or this currency or uh, this Venmo, whatever it is in, in, <laughs> in whatever ways that uh, our <laughs> money system shows up, right? In so many yep. different ways, even now. Uh, Bitcoin, good Lord. All right. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a story behind did all that undergirds it that nobody questions. But yeah. automatic, everybody automatically believes it. And we're all yes. on the same page about it. This is what money is for. Yes. And and I think that it, at part of our discipleship and our formation is to begin to interrogate uh, our story of money. Yeah. Could, could money itself have a different story, right? And uh, for example, we use those categories of gleaning, uh, of Jubilee and of Sabbath, which challenges us and challenge the people of Israel to look at what they had, their resources. You know, yeah. Jubilee... You had to hold loosely to things, right? <laughs> Theoretically. Yeah. Knew you were giving the land back. If you knew that your uh, labor force was going to be decreased at the end of 49 years when they sound the, the trumpet, right? That there would be freedom in, you know, throughout the land. Or if you're, uh, if you're working the land, you know that eventually you're going to have to allow it to grow fallow. I'm not yes. going to be extractive in that. That's a story. That That's a story that says... Uh, God is in charge of this enough. Yeah. Right. Because in our society, yeah. we're constantly wrestling with this idea of appetite, of consumerism. As a matter of fact, you know, there's the story of money is what? It's, it is consumerism. Yes. Uh, when when the government is saying stimulus, right? They're not trying to stimulate your savings account. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> they're mine. trying to say, take this dollar and go out and spend it right so the dollars can circulate more and you can you know make make these companies rich and they can continue to do what they do right yes and that's that's the the the, the kind of unholy cycle uh we're when we're when we wrote this book we're thinking about a different cycle it's yeah. it's a cycle that that nourishes it's a cycle that uh practices a preferential option to those who are on the margins it's it's a it's a cycle that allows for gifts to circulate so if I'm looking at my money, my currency as a gift instead of a possession, come on now, right? Yeah. That's a different story. If not, I'm looking at my house as a gift, yeah, not a possession, that's a different story. If yeah. it's a possession, it stops with me. But yeah. if it's a gift, it's going to flow with me mm. to the hands of others. And and that's, to me, a biblical stewardship. And, and our, unfortunately, our conversations about uh, money about stewardship, particularly in the church, stay in the in the realm, and I, we mentioned this in the book, of tithes and offerings and maybe building funds. Right. We need a new imagination and a new uh, 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 story. Yeah. Money in our possessions. Yes, absolutely. That's so good. And you were preaching there, so I love that you said <laughs> I do that sometimes. You yeah. do. It's good. It's always good. <laughs> I guess I wonder, too, you know, um, knowing, knowing a bit of your story, story um jose it's not so much this isn't so much of a disruptive message that you're providing this was baked into a bit of the way that you were raised to be right like you understood the tie between economics and faith for someone like myself i'm assuming someone like you adam there there are holy disruptions that have to occur in order for us to see this what did that look like for you adam yeah. Because because what I'm wondering about is how do we disrupt these patterns within these well-established 
ecosystems mm-hmm. that are averse to um, spreading wealth. Yeah. Well, I wish I, I wish I um, felt like that was an easy thing to do. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's very easy. Um, and I think that even as Jose was talking, I was thinking the, the, in, in my life, people like me, I think that the move is like waking up to, to realizing that you've confused a prison for a privilege. And um, the, so like, I think about when Jesus says, you know, if I came to set you free, you'll be free indeed. And the people that heard him say that said, what are you talking about? We're the chosen ones. We don't need to be set free. And then he's like, okay, well, you're not, you don't see it yet. And that's the same thing, right? Like, okay, we've got this privilege. We don't need Jesus's liberation. Right. And um, when I think about wealth, that it's the same move. That's why I say that, because I think it's the same move is what are you talking about? I've got a five or, you know, a $500,000 house. I've got five homes across the country. I've got all of these things. Mm. Uh, I'm doing fine. You know, I'm as free as a bird, but I think it's that that is in fact the prison. And I think that to me is the the thing that the whole, the whole thing hinges on for the wealthy is will we wake up to the fact that our wealth in our various forms mm. Uh, our, our prisons of our own making, right? Not oppression. Like I just want to be really clear. Like yeah. we need yeah. liberation, but it's not it's not oppression in the same way. Yes. And in fact, our our prison means that we enact oppression oftentimes. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um, will we sort of wake up to that, or will we walk away sad yeah. because we 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 turn our back on the very thing that was offering us the freedom that we need? Mm. And I. You know, I think that there is a piece of that that and the stories that captivate me is when people who have wealth, who have built it um, because they have particular gifts or particular talents or sensibilities, like start to turn those in the direction of this sort of mutual liberative movement. Yeah. You know, and we tell some of those stories in the book where it's like, okay, here's somebody who woke up mm. and was like, okay, this isn't just about me anymore. Mm. How can I how can I bring this skill for the benefit of my community? Yeah. And not in just a charitable way, but one that actually moves the needle on the kind of systems that we're talking about. Yes. That's the thing that, you know, they're very small examples. They're not as many of them as I'd like, but uh that's the kind of thing that gives me some excitement. Yeah, the purpose of writing a book like this, right? You know, right. it's like we've all I love that example of where prisoners were not oppressed but we've all been dehumanized in this whiteness system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is like a rehumanization mm-hmm. of all of us. I think, I think about that when you, you touch on, there's one thing that you said about uh, sort of the natural outcome of these systems. It was in, I think it was in relation to the Tulsa massacre. Um, there's a quote actually that you said, the Tulsa massacre cannot be viewed as an isolated incident perpetuated by a group of individually violent racists. Instead, it must be seen as a natural outcome of a horrific expression of the violent economic extraction that has characterized the relationship between white and black America from the beginning. That these, it's all too easy for us to look at the individual cases of racism or the individual super wealthy, the Elon Musks or the David Dukes uh, and point the blame in those in that direction. We're all a part of that same ecosystem that pers- that brings those people to the surface. And I wonder if you think about this rehumanization or this uh, attempt to to like uh, set other people free from whatever prison they're in. Does that offer more sort of compassion and empathy within you for people that are doing some more oppression than others? What does that do within you? Does it change the way that you view any of those people? Uh, it's so interesting that when you ask that question and, and, and Adam referred to, you know, uh, prison, right? You know, this playoff of privilege as well. I couldn't help but think about uh, J.R. Tolkien and uh, the Gollum character mm. and, and how that, that precious ring, right? That precious possession uh, cast them out of community. 
And, and that's what, that's what possessions do, right? That's what wealth does. It's, you know, it becomes an idolatry. The more you have, uh, the more you have to lose. Yeah. Which is why uh, statistically, uh, the more you have, the less you give. <laughs> yes. You know, there's a, there's a lot of quotes in phila philanthropy that demonstrate that, you know, people yeah. with us give more, right? They, right? they realize the necessity of cooperation. And we see that through many cultures uh, across the globe. People know that, hey, in order for us to live, in order for us to retire, hey, we're not relying on a 401k. Right. Uh, what, what's the 401k? My family's my 401k, right? It's mm -hmm. my community, uh, literally. And, and the expectation is that when we cook dinner, we're, we're going to uh, make enough for everybody, mm -hmm. right? And that's 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 not just a posture or an attitude that is baked into the culture, how yeah. we how we belong uh, together. So, uh, yes, I think when I think about uh, this idea of this this pr pr uh, prison. Uh, yeah, there's this isolation and this uh, dehumanization uh, that happens. And it's it goes back to what I had mentioned early. Uh, people have given into the story, uh, the yeah. American story. And we find ourselves in debt, right? You know, student debt is, is something that's so prohibitive uh, for people uh, being able to live uh, in a space of liberation and even an openness. When you think about going to bed, knowing that you have thousands of dollars that have also incurred interest on that. Yeah. That is a spiritual matter. Yes. It's a spiritual matter. Uh, and, you know, people with means are in debt as well. Right. And, you know, you also have poor folks or middle-class folks who are kind of a, a diminishing uh, demographic. Yep. Your original question, I think, I dealt more with, I kind of gave you a little parenthetical thing there. But your original question was about kind of loving the wealth holder, right? <laughs> and I think what's been kind of anchoring for me, because as, as someone who has been activistic and has been kind of formed in, you know, liberationist thinking, I, I've, I've had a, I've had a lot of friction with with you know loving those with means, and I think even writing this book has been super formative for me to be thinking about, yeah, how is it that we engage wealth holders in love? And it was so interesting how Jesus did that. Yeah. Uh, he meets with this rich guy. Yep. Uh, rich guy is like, what must I do? And he was like, yeah, you know, eternal life. And 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 then the Bible says, I think it's in the book of Mark. The, it says it was almost a throwaway. Preachers never really talk about this part. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Yeah. And then laid it down. It was yeah. like, okay, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, there's a preface there. Yes. You know, it's a speed bump, right? Uh, and, and it acts as this, like, space between, you know, stimulus and response. Yeah. What must I do? Well, you know, get out of my face with your riches, yo. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we didn't do that, right? You know, it was like, it was suspend judgment, speed bump. Yeah. What do I think about this person in front of me? Oh, well, we can't dehumanize them, to your point, because then we're, we're not doing anything better here. Uh, let's humanize. Let's love. Let's let's dimensionalize. Let's remember they are created in the image of God. So Jesus mm -hmm. loved him, and then the, then the challenge came. And I, and I think yeah. that that's been revolutionary for me to think about. Yeah, you know, I'm if if we're if we're gonna move the needle on on some of this stuff, we're gonna need people with means. Yes. Uh, you know, ministry, any initiative that that that's worth taking on does not move alone by wind or. Uh, you know, good intentions. Uh, money is a real thing that yeah. helps things to move in the, in the economic system that we find ourselves in. So uh, I think the question is, how do we not just collaborate with, with people with means? I'm really just thinking in this season, yeah, how do I love wealth holders? Hmm. And and also, uh, how, do, how, do, how do they get challenged to think about what they have, their relationship to their stuff? And if, if they're challenged in their relationship to their stuff and also the story of their stuff mm -hmm. and the story that they've un unconsciously adopted, right, about their stuff, what capitalism says about it. And I think a, a robust conversation about that, I think, will have people actually liberated. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to give in ways that I've never given before. And there's going to be a different intentionality to it. I'm going to partner along people instead of acting like a foundation that says, 
Here are the dictates for how you use my money. Come on. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to actually learn from you uh, and you're going to be the expert. So when I give you this money, uh, there's there's going to be this mutuality, yeah. which I think what, what an ecosystem, a true ecosystem is about. It's inherently about mutuality. It's inherently about participation. It's inherently about those things that uh, provide for a generative uh, flow yeah. of resources that, you know what, bless everybody. Yes. In, in, in a situation like this, I, I think if I don't have compassion for the folks that you're talking about, um, or at least try to cultivate it <laughs> in the moments when it's hard. So, okay, I guess what I'd say, a lack of compassion for folks like that is a, a denial of my own like position in the world. And mm. in, 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 in meaning like, like, I can't be like, thank God I'm not like that sinner over there because I wake up every day and participate in a system uh, as someone who has benefited from economic injustice. And unless I admit to that and admit that I am, my instincts are formed, my perspectives are formed, my worldview is formed by that kind of ethos, unless I admit to that, um, then I'm blind to the way that I will continue to perpetuate it myself. But the minute I admit that that all of my instincts are probably shaped around these kinds of things, and so like I'm blind, I don't know what I don't know, I need to see, then that gives me the potential to have compassion for people. You know what I mean? So it's yes. not like a setting setting off. So <clears throat> yeah. my caveat there is like, when when we don't know, that we are bound up by this kind of stuff. We will make decisions that hurt others yeah. and that's not okay. So like, I don't have compassion for our continued uh, injury of the other, um, right. but I, I can have compassion for our, our collective like blindness to this, that yeah. we don't see it. Um, and, and I do think that's one of the reasons why you know, we try to write a book that's like, and we can do this and look at what people are doing here because there's a genuine, like compassionate, we can be different. Right. Um, even, even if that feels like a faint hope that that notion I think is a let's, let's move this way together. Oof. I don't know how you think of yourselves. I tend to, I've tended to think of myself as a realist or a pessimist, but I wouldn't have these conversations if I weren't an optimist on some level, you know? <laughs> so I got to come to grips with it. I think I'm an optimist on some level that I hope or else I wouldn't even bother having the conversation. But I, one of the things about the system that shaped my mind is that uh, difficulties in life including economic difficulty was always attributed to low morality <clears throat> so i remember having this conversation very recently with somebody that i grew up in the 90s so it wasn't that i didn't hear about racism and injustice i grew up with watching in living color uh, martin fresh prince all, all that listened to tupac i didn't internalize any of it none of it it wasn't until i was in my 20s that i saw what the system was about and what my position in that system was. And so I, I guess when I think about that fundamental shift between um, you're talking about the Hebrew Bible talks about morality and ethics this way, and the way that white Christianity has talked about ethics and morals is a very different hyper-individual, sinner, moral kind of thing. Um, have you had conversations? Have you noticed anything that's an effective way to communicate this like, they're not necessarily in conflict, but what the scriptures seem to be talking the most about is our collective well-being and what this morality standard thing does is separate us from one another. I'll, I'll say the thing that I learned from Jose in this process was he, he, when we were talking about the notion of ecosystems and he started talking about the trees in the forest and how yeah. there's this subterranean network of support and exchange and how you assume that the tallest trees in the forest, like they hog the sunlight, they get the rain, they've got all the nutrients. That's why they're tall. Um, but that actually they receive it, pull it down into that network. And then all the trees, even the most vulnerable are like nourished by that. Um, that is such a beautiful picture of the like communal well-being notion that I think the scriptures put out and that we have lost. 
where we see the other as a competitor. You know, I think about this all the time with those wealth management commercials where it's sort of like the only people that matter are these are my grandkids who don't exist yet. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. and so right. no one else matters. They are all enemies and opponents. Um, these non-existent grandkids are, are the reason why I do this. And I think yeah. there's just such a different, there's just such a different thing, you know, like, I, and this isn't original to me, but I just think about how, like, if I'm, if I prioritize my kids over your kids, then we're opponents. But if all the kids matter, uh, then, then my kids will flourish too, right? Like yes. if, if we're in it for all the children, then we can, then my children will be fine. And, and I just think that's such a beautiful thing. I don't know that it's, I just think it's like any kind of good news. Like that when you are ready to hear its beauty, you will be captivated by it. And yeah. if you aren't, you will walk away sad. And I just think that there's this kind of like repetitive, uh, uh, articulation of this yeah. beautiful communal well-being that has to happen yeah it's the if you have ears to hear right yeah 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 if you have ears to hear that's for sure uh you know what strikes me is how political ideology puts the blinders on the on us when we have these conversations so anytime you talk about uh yeah. cooperative uh sharing economy people right away default to oh you know, you're trying to be a socialist or you're trying to be name your, you know, your cooperative uh, structure for governing. Right. Yep. And uh, it's so interesting to me, though, that the way that the Gospels are written. Uh, it was shared with the collective. It was mm. the good news of the collective. It was <laughs> it was all that the letters were written to collectives of people it wasn't like this is my love letter from paul you know it was, <laughs> it was just like dude and that's how we were it's just like everything is like a me and jesus and me and paul and and you know when we begin to realize that oh this is this is collectivistic and yeah. i think for me that's what really makes it good news it's that reclamation that this is not good news for a few but this is good news for the world mm. And and so Jesus goes into his hometown, right? In Luke chapter four, filled with the power of the spirit, opens the scroll in Isaiah. And, I'm, you know, we described this in the book. It was almost like Jesus is uh, announcing his campaign to run for president. Yeah. And he's doing it in his hometown of all places. And you would think that he, the brother would want to uh, rally the saints and the troops. Right? We're going to make this a pep rally. And everything was good. And everything was fine, right? When he starts talking about liberate the oppressed, set the captive free, declare the year of the Lord's Jubilee, right? He, a paraphrase of Isaiah 61. Yeah. And when he starts talking about that, this is not just for you guys in this village, <laughs> but this is also potentially for the oppressor. Oh, yes. this is also potentially for uh, the Gentiles, people that we've been taught to separate ourselves, even to hate and and when you realize like how expansive this story is that, that Jesus was trying to create that would have ramifications for, for economy, have ramifications for uh, reconciliation between yeah. two, two people who were uh, hostile to one another, is you realize like, oh, this is mind blowing. But what's the good news in that? The good news is that uh, it's so much more of a generous story than we've ever received especially yeah. if you grew up evangelical. Uh, the fact that I'm uh, I'm being challenged myself as someone who's in one of these quote-unquote oppressed minority groups to say, oh, by the way, you're supposed to love the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, or by the way, you're supposed to love, you fill in the blank, right? Yes. Right. As a person of color, that that we all have a an onus and a responsibility for uh, honoring this ecosystem. And not becoming the very thing, hello, not becoming the very thing that uh, we're railing against yeah. when we get in power, when we get the money. Like, dude, that's that's tough. Right? You know, tell me, I want the American dream. I want my house. I want the picket <laughs> fence. I want the 2.5 children. I want it all. You know what I'm saying? I want that second home. And, you know, if you think about it, like the, the things that get challenged, like this way it's hard it's it, it yes. deals with the core because it's not just possessions it's because we made possessions part of our identity and that's hard Ooh, you know that reminded me of man that reminded me of uh occupy 
the Occupy movement. Um, I went to Occupy Boston, where it was like right in the financial financial district. I was in seminary at the time. And I went to some of the meetings and there was this one guy that said something that really stuck with me. He's like, you know, my dad's in one of those buildings. And he was like, he started railing against his dad and the system. And all I'm thinking is, well, you can sleep outside here for weeks on end because your dad's in that building. Like... <laughs> You're not worried. You wouldn't choose to sleep outside otherwise. Like I worked at the time I worked with people experiencing homelessness. I was pissed. I'm just like, you know, like, can't you see you're going to just replicate the problem, you know, if that's the approach. And so I guess that brings up my next question, which I think is a difficult one for Christians to deal with now, where there is a mass exodus from white evangelicalism when the source of this kind of message has been the source of oppression, what does that look like? That message that who it comes from is so important because there are so many people that are tuning out to anything that smells Christian or Jesus. There's so many people that otherwise might be open to it because they love and care for people who are oppressed. Um, and so I wonder what you do when you wrestle with this question of, this cultural religious shift in our context in our our country how do you wrestle with that this conversation with people because it, it is it can be good news to those that are not within the christian tradition but have been hurt by it i wonder if you've thought much about that question and where you go with it uh i have a really good friend her name is alexi torres fleming and she's the executive director of jubilee gift and they they actually don't like uh people or organizations to put them out in the spotlight. Uh, so I'll say a few things. Uh, one of the things that she's done wonderfully and the organization has, has done uh, is to, uh, first of all, create some language around these conversations. And it's beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. When I talk, when you hear me say wisdom keepers, wealth holders, yeah, you know, money is a, an unconscious agreement. This is all language that I, I've been kind of forged around just from hanging around with some of those folks. Uh, but here's here's the here's the ethos of what they created, because it goes back to what we were saying, individualism versus collectivism, how we yeah. do things. There's no figurehead who is going to lead a, a movement like this, the one yeah. that you're describing. Right. Uh, it's going to be a movement. It might be uh, ecumenical. It might even be interfaith. Uh, and what what I love about what they're doing specifically is like, yeah, let's bring together native indigenous wisdom because they have mm. a lot to say about ecosystems and ecology and, and gift economies, right? What does a gift economy look like? When we realize that what we have been given doesn't come from us and doesn't belong to us. Yeah. That's a hard one for people who are American, like all, you know, all of us who were raised here, right? You know, into that that kind of thinking. But they're also including wealth holders, and and people with means. And I, I really do think that it's going to be a, a chorus of voices uh, speaking from their particular context about how they interrogated money, hmm. how they interrogated the, the capitalistic narrative and the story of money that so influences and controls our lives. We, yes. We're swimming in the waters of it. And that's what people don't realize. Yeah. You're, you're swimming in the waters of this. From the moment you get up in the morning and you pick up your name brand toothbrush <laughs> and you look at the advertisement on the on the on the tube and yeah. go out and and here on East Harlem on the corner where we have veterans who are struggling, uh, who uh, there's a residence right across the street from me and they're, they might be on street corners and people might mistake them for panhandlers. Uh, but they're not. They they've served their countries, and they're they're out there uh, dealing with all kinds of economic insecurity, and and just asking for money, and and is realizing like, no, this is this is a, a collective effort that, and I would even say this, venture out to this, that goes beyond the scope of the church. Yeah, the church cannot be the flagship for this kind of stuff. I think yeah. that there's people out there that are saying uh, wiser things than we are when it comes to to thinking about like a concerted effort. To, to redefine um, stewardship and generosity. Mm. Dave, I don't know if this is exactly what you were getting at, but as you were asking that question, it made me start thinking about the the doctrinal statements or the beliefs or the core values might all be different. And I, and I genuinely think those are important things. We yeah. should 
you know, deal with. But the things that you don't put on your website, um, mm -hmm. like money and power structures, those things were not interrogated right. in this shift. Um, and the people that I know that have that have sort of moved to moved to a different side of this conversation around evangelicalism or whatnot, um, they we we've we've failed to interrogate how money works and how power works. Mm. And 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 in my this is my limited experience, but in my limited experience, that's the evangelical playbook that is so insidious. Because evangelicalism borrowed full stop the capitalistic mindset uh, it, from like how we built this thing uh, over the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years in particular. Yeah. Uh, and this idea that we want to, you know, we want to market to homogeneous units. We want to build uh, self-sustaining financial enterprises that become the source of livelihood for exponentially growing numbers of people and then you then you create a system that is dependent upon meeting the felt spiritual needs of what you yes. hope is a is a large group of people yeah and you can't afford to lose market share because look at all these people whose livelihood depend on it yep. we've built a reputation and all of this and so the machine has to continue to produce dollars yes, yes. and so and so the money and the power are tied together there because you cannot question that system that has a power structure set up to see it perpetuated. Mm -hmm. And you can't you can't lose market share or you can't keep the machine going. Yes. And, and I actually do feel there's part of me that feels some degree of sympathy for like a pastor that's in a situation where they know they can't lose particular people or their yeah. job is on the line. Um, I, I feel some sympathy for that person that that knows they can't preach about jubilee mm. <laughs> i can't do it or i will lose my job or if i do right they're going to throw me off a cliff yeah um and and we and we haven't trained our our pastors to know what to to know what to do in that situation we haven't you know we were talking about side hustles before we were we, we you know like not enough people have enough ability to do those kinds of things yeah. and so we're dependent on that system I'm kind of rambling, but I think that that's, no, that's really this the, that's really the thing is like, how do you, how do you question things like economic justice when the disaffected ones that are still gathering in communities haven't interrogated money and power enough? Mm. So like, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm talking to somebody that's like, I don't think I want anything to do with Jesus, I'm saying, Hey, find a community where the pastor isn't tied to the Sunday tithes and offerings. Yeah. If you can find a community like that, you're probably going to get something that's a little closer to what Jesus was all about. <laughs> Whoa. I remember having this conversation Whoa. man. when I was when I was church, when I was like starting off church planting. I remember Jose and I had a couple long conversations that really stuck with me because I'm like, I just don't know if a church can go past five years and be revolutionary anymore. Like it becomes a part of the ecosystem. It becomes a part of capitalism. And the way that the society functions now, no shade to Metro. Metro is a totally different animal. Now, I I was saying this as someone who was coming up within a tradition that was teaching me to become a sustainable business. And all I had in my head was, yeah. well, if I'm going to call out power structures, how the hell am I going to survive? Like, how are we going to survive, especially in this setting? And then if you think about pastors that are like in the settings you're talking about in wealthier suburbs, calling people to Jubilee, how are they going to survive? Because no one's going to come to their churches. And I, I think that's where like the faithfulness that you were talking about earlier on, Adam, is so difficult because faithfulness sort of by nature will not produce bucks for you. That's right. And, you know, uh, Jose, you keep talking about interrogating our relationship to money. This is not an easy conversation. No, and and it can leave any pastor feeling insecure. Yeah, know? and even in the midst of my own transition, as I'm moving on, right? We were talking about side hustles, like what, yeah. what else am I going to do? And uh, it, you know, even Metro has had those uh, those conversations, right? It would ebb and flow, uh, referring to what you were saying that if you're going to be revolutionary. If you're gonna really like have people interrogate their relationship with money, possessions, etc., uh, 
uh, yeah, that's not going to sell tickets, right? <laughs> and and in the first five years of ministry, maybe pr prior to those five years, like I had a certain courage. Like people would be like, I don't really like this about the church. You know, you guys are always talking about justice. And I had no problems the first couple of years. It's interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, just be like, in, in Harlem, we have so many churches. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I didn't even send them to the church across the street. There was a church across the hall. I'd be like, you know, you can just go. <laughs> <laughs> right you know what i'm saying you don't hey you know what I'm saying it's like a it's like a food court up in here you know you don't like the bourbon chicken you can, <laughs> you can try some of that right so <laughs> but you know i remember having that kind of boldness like and then you know year five to your point year six when you're talking about like you know getting adopted into something forming a polity you know creating all the structures you realize that oh you know this is becoming more of a business model yeah. And this is all we know now. Now we have to, you know, we have giving units. Yeah. And and yeah. Uh, so that that's actually on, I guess, maybe for another conversation. That, yes. That's what I'm really trying to uh, have conversations with about with church planters who I know, you know, doing some real grassroots stuff, powerful uh, gospel centered stuff. And um, I also know that they're not going to be self-sustaining anytime soon. Yeah. So uh I want to have those conversations around, right. around the economy because I feel like those are generative rather than just just keeping the old models. Yes, and th typically those are not in places where um, people can afford to have a an unsustainable position. They, you know, people need jobs, <laughs> um, and especially you know the people that are leading us in terms of faith practice and spirituality. You know, we look to folks like that, um, and. I think a lot of it does come out of struggle. And so I, I think about when I think about the Hebrew Christ, the Hebrew Bible, Christian scriptures, I think about this story of people struggling and striving and constantly um, striving, striving with each other, striving with the system and ultimately seeking uh, this way that you're talking about. And I can't I think it's such I, I just love the language that you use throughout this book. It seems way more generative than condemnatory which just doesn't move anything never mind a mountain and mm -hmm. so i i guess i wonder you know in this conversation where you know you're talking about moving a mountain you're talking about shifting you're talking about an ecosystem within um the empire system uh, what what are some moves that you feel like people can make even though we're talking about collective things what are some things that people who are sort of benefiting from the system as it is what can what's a move they can make that feels manageable um they can kind of start moving in the direction you're talking about other than of course reading the book get that book get that book yeah no of course that um <laughs> i i think about it um this way and and i'm sure that there are plenty of folks who would think about it very differently than i do but um you know in the book we talk about wendell berry and he talks about the kingdom of god if the, the, a perfect economy would be called the kingdom of God. Hmm. Uh, but he said, you know, you can't really use that language <laughs> and people understand what you mean. So let me just say the great economy hmm. and uh, the great economy, like fulfills the notions of the kingdom of God. That's that like global sense that you're talking about. And he said, none of us have access to that. Hmm. All we have is the little economy, the little space right in front of us, the neighborhood, whatever it is, the community that we're a part of. And, and, he he talks about how the work is shaping the little economy to look like what we think the great economy is. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's like my quasi Anabaptist like leanings to mm. say like, no, like, like, it's just my, it's just this thing in front of me, the community that's here, we can create something different in this very local space. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I think that's the thing that gives it power, right? Because uh, we talk about how, how many ways we get dehumanized because of this thing. Well, the global conversation can get dehumanizing pretty quick too. But mm. in, in my neighborhood, my neighbors have names and they have faces. And mm. when they own a home, then we own homes in the neighborhood together. And then, you know what I mean? Then then that's a very human enterprise. Yeah. And I think the more of us that are doing that, you know, we're in three different states right now. If the three of us are doing that, then that's three states where things like this are you know, little uh, demonstration plots, I guess, of God's kingdom uh, or the great economy. So, 
Love that. Love that. I love that demonstration plot metaphor. That was out yeah. of Adam's first book. Yeah. And I tell him I run with it. <laughs> like the spirit told me about the demonstration. It's public domain. I give Adam the credit. It's, I give it's Adam public credit. domain. First time. The first time. <laughs> uh, I, I love um, Adam's language about uh, being hyper local. Right. It's this idea of being something small. Right. You know, small is all. I think as Adrian Marie Brown talks about. Right. She mm. talks about fractals. Right. And you know, what are the patterns and practices? Uh, God talked. Jesus talked about that when he when 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 he talked about the signs of the kingdom. Right, uh, there there are patterns of miracles you're going to see. There's patterns of community, of breaking bread, of of sharing resources, of you know sitting under the disciples' feet and and listening to teaching. Right, they, those yeah. are all patterns and practices that we see uh, that the first church participated in. And I, I think that that's that's it. You know how the the question is like how. And we talk about this in the book, how uh, can we have interventions and interactions on a micro level? Yeah. Like what, what's required of me, my personal budget, even the money in my pocket that can actually uh, go from being uh, just currency to gift. Mm. I want to gift this to someone, you know, in the streets and have a conversation with them and let them know I see you. You're not alone. Yeah, We're in this neighborhood in this shared space and reality, as Adam referred to. What about from micro to mezzo? What can we do as as institutions? You yeah. know, so there's ways that churches yes. can latch on to this. Like, you know, we could be the church scattered and gathered. We do this as individuals. We do this as a collective. How is it that we're looking at our budget and, and how maybe as a church are we tithing back to our community? Yes. In a way that uh, really speaks to some of the needs in our neighborhood. And they know that we're here. Yeah. For that, and then there's macro, as we talked about. We can, you know, even on a policy level, we have a lot of activists who are out there, you know, keeping tracks of track of bills that are pertinent to them. That, uh, you know, there's some bills out there that are uh, of a restorative, reparative nature. You know, HR. There's a there's a bill in Congress right now around uh, providing money and uh, resources to the children of uh, black folks that served in the war who didn't get to benefit from the GI Bill, didn't get the houses, who didn't get the college education. So now they're looking looking at this, this whole generation of people who didn't have the same benefits that white folks had hmm. to, to pass down generational wealth. So we're seeing that this is happening on on in, in all parts of the ecosystem. And, and, and it, we just got to start off small, start somewhere. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.